In the first part of the book of Alma, we have a very worried prophet. As he looks around, he sees uh, members of the church that are attacking one another, that are there withholding love and service and care and even food from their uh, fellow saints. On top of that, that kind of scorn and ridicule is pouring over into people outside the church, leading them on to wickedness. It's a mess. So we get a chance to now see Alma step into the role of the great reclaimer. He will give up his uh, judgeship so that he can go and preach to the people. How does that work, and how does he do it? In essence, how does he help them rediscover that mighty change of heart? And by the way, what does that mighty change of heart look like? And what does it mean to be redeemed? There are a lot of questions. Join us today for our class on the mighty change of heart uh, that we've kind of entitled, uh, Salvation is Not an Individual Sport. Uh, glad you're here, and welcome to our class. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. Welcome to today's class. Obviously, if you're listening to this, uh, I'm not in front of a live class. Uh, I was in front of a live class, but we had an unfortunate thing happen, and that is about halfway through, uh, or a third of the way through uh, today's live class, the uh, recorder managed to turn itself off. Uh, so I had recorded a wonderful class uh, live in front of the group. Uh, it turned out well. Uh, we're not going to be able to use any of that. Uh, so I want to come back and walk through what it is that we were looking at. And this is going to take place uh, primarily in Alma 4 and 5. As we start looking at Alma, this is Alma the Younger, who at this moment is both the high priest and the chief judge. <laughs> that's, that's a lot for one guy to have to be doing both. Uh, but he begins to notice something. Um, and if we're looking at in Alma uh, 4, in verse 8, he says, uh, or Mormon is telling us, <clears throat> For they saw and beheld with great sorrow that the people of the church began to be lifted up in... Yes, it is the pride of their eyes and to set their hearts upon riches. And what's interesting is that for these Nephites, and it's kind of human nature, I suppose, is that they would then go from setting their hearts upon riches, and, and then, then it says they begin to be scornful one towards another, and they begin to persecute those who did not believe in their own will and pleasure. And, and so what you get is... In verse 9 of 
Alma 4, it says, In this eighth year of the reign of the judges, there began to be great contentions among the people of the church. Uh, this is a church thing. It's not a, it's not a conflict between the church and non-members. It's a church thing. This is a battle going on within the church. That's the problem. Uh, and, and it says that there were, <laughs> what's going on in this church? There were great contentions. There were envies and strife and malice and persecutions. Mormon's not missing anything here. Malice and persecutions and pride, even to exceed the pride of those that didn't belong to the church. Um, and the problem with all of that was, in verse 11, the example of the church began to lead those who were unbelievers on from one piece of iniquity to another. So what the members of the church were doing was actually causing the non-members to sin. And then Mormon throws this in, and he can do this from his perch uh, a thousand years later, or 400 years later, about what happened. He says uh, that as they're leading those unbelievers from one piece of iniquity to another, he says, thus bringing on the destruction of the people. And he knows that by his own experience. So, the the when you look at this and you say, what's the what is the problem here? What is all of their pride and everything causing? Here's where he goes with this. Uh, he sees great inequality among the people. Some lifting themselves up with their pride, and it says they were despising others, turning their backs on the needy and the naked, and those that were hungry, and those who were athirst, and those that were sick and afflicted. That seems to be the major problem, is that when they start going down this road of pride, it extends over to the back that it begins to attack and harm those that were most vulnerable among the Nephites. And that was going to be the needy, the naked, the hungry, the sick and afflicted. They were being harmed by this kind of pride, which means these guys were withholding at that point their their support and love uh, for these people. And, and he goes on to say that it, probably what drove him to then go on this uh, crusade, which he's going to do now in Alma 5 to 7, uh, he says this was a cause of great lamentations among the people. And see, while others were abasing themselves and succoring those that stood in need and imparting their substance to the poor, the righteous, the, the, the ones that thought they were righteous were afflicting those that were struggling that way. Um, but he did say there was that, that group of uh, Nephites, because they were doing that, they looked forward to the day of Christ's coming. And then he throws in a phrase that we actually get from King Benjamin that by doing that, they're retaining a remission of their sins, being filled with joy because of the resurrection of the dead. So, Alma then makes the, the big decision that he does, that we know that he, he does, where he's going to give up the, the chief judgeship, and he's going to hand that off to Nephiha. And then, at, based on that, now being the high priest, it's his job to go preach uh, to those that are uh, have become prideful, and certainly the place he's going to start uh, is going to be with uh, Zarahemla. Now, the way he's going to go about it, especially according to the way that Mormon says it, is to be honest here, gang. There, there is kind of a um, 
a pause that I think we need to, to make here while we, we look at this because sometimes phraseology changes over time and means different to us than it did back then. And sometimes it's kind of the same. So the, the phrasing here when we get to uh, verse 19 is that he decided that he of himself is going to go among the people, that he's going to preach the word unto them, and that he's going to stir them up to a remembrance of their duty. And then listen to the phraseology, uh, and especially look at it through modern eyes and how we would take it uh, if we thought that there was a prophet that was, uh, or a leader, or a bishop, or somebody today was going to do it this way. Um, in fact, let, let, let me frame it that way. Let's say that your bishop said uh, that he was upset about what was going on in the ward, that he was going to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, that he might pull down all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions that were among his people. And how is he going to do that? Seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were bearing down in pure testimony against them. This idea of bearing down in pure testimony, I think may mean one thing to us, and it might have meant the same thing back then, but certainly when we look at it through our modern eyes, one of the things that we're finding is that that bearing down word in pure testimony against them kind of gives you a sense of a bit of harshness and power. Um, and I'm, I was trying to think uh, about people that I know that have struggled with the church or leaving the church or those that are struggling with some kind of sin of some type. And we're going to say, there's no way to, I'm, I'm going to reclaim them except I'm going to bear down in pure testimony. Well, I don't know about you, but that hasn't always worked well for me. <laughs> it hasn't. Uh, if, if somebody needs to stop doing, if I'm going to not just bear down on them with truth, but if I'm going to bear down in pure testimony, that doesn't sound and feel and come across really well. If they're, if they're not believing in the church and I'm going to say, listen to me, I'm going to bear down and say, it's true. I know it's true and you need to believe it's true and you're sinning. And, you know, if, if we take what it means to bear down, uh, I was teasing the class earlier about women that have gone through labor and they have to bear down near the end of labor. Well, that's kind of a hard push and they're going to bear down well if i'm going to bear down on somebody with a uh, with my testimony i think they're going to push back it, that does not work and you know we might look at this and say well you know what this is what the nephites needed they needed somebody to bear down so here's a question i'd ask and you might ask yourself on this um did it work if, if uh, Alma's going to bear down in pure testimony, did it work? Did they turn themselves around? And the record certainly says yes in the short run and no in the long run. In the short run, yes. When Abinadi, when uh, Samuel, when uh, Alma, uh, Helaman, uh, Nephi the third, you think about all the people that we have records of in the Book of Mormon that bore down in pure testimony, this is true and you are wrong. What we found is that there was a short-term turnaround and that they would come back around and 
great baptisms and happiness. And like five years later, they're falling apart again. So I think people can be persuaded to kind of be scared into or with great power change what they're doing. But I don't know if it changes the roots. I don't know if it changes the hearts. It changes the behavior in the short run. But man, in the long run, it just doesn't seem to to do well. And yet we did have a, a history in the church of people saying, well, you know, if if you're going to study the mysteries or you're studying and struggling with this aspect of the gospel, then I'm supposed to bear down in pure testimony and say, yeah, I know that you struggle with uh, what the church did with blacks and the priesthood, but I know that Brigham Young was a prophet and I know that this is true. And, you know, if you have a problem with it, put it on the shelf. Don't worry about it. Um, The brethren are now saying that approach, you know, just bear testimony, tell them not to worry about it, walk away. That approach doesn't work. Kids today, people that are falling away from the church today, they need answers. They really need answers. They don't, they don't need, they feel brushed off if we're just going to bear testimony and walk away. Or if we're going to be so overbearing that they're going to say, well, I won't ask you again. I'll just keep that to myself. So that doesn't work. And we have records that it doesn't work. So, and in this case, this is the way that Alma was going to do it. And again, I think he got a short-term gain. But I just think if if we look in the long run, we're not. There's a question, I think, as to whether there was a long-term change of heart, because he's going to start talking about change of of heart in here. And the question is whether he got it with bearing down in testimony. Anyway, so now let's hop over to. Alma 5, next chapter, and look at what, look at how he begins to approach this. So now we actually have uh, words, we can suppose that probably Alma wrote this down, uh, because now we don't have to have Mormon's uh, intervention in this. We just have uh, Alma's written statement about, here's what I said. Because he's going to start off by saying, I, Alma, having been consecrated by my father, Alma, to be high priest over the church of God. Which, as we know, that was not an easy path for him to ultimately become high priest because he had his wild oats that he sowed uh, before that. But now one of the things that he's going to do then is that he's going to uh, spend some time and... He's going to go through the process of um, reacquainting the people with um, how it is that we got to this point. How how did we get here? So what he's going to say is that Alma, uh, his father, uh, he says, first of all, in verse 4, that he was delivered out of the hands of of the people of King Noah by the mercy and power of God. So you're going to watch two levels of this thing. You're going to watch uh, a uh, deliverance, and then you're going to watch a bondage uh, deliverance. And these aren't necessarily the same thing. And then in verse 6, he's going to say, My brethren that belong to the church, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers. Um, 
And moreover, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that, he, that God delivered their souls from hell? Now, this idea of uh, the Nephites living with a uh, kind of an institutional memory of their history, uh, as they're sitting there in Zarahemla listening to Alma the Younger, they know that uh, what Alma went through with coming out of the waters of Mormon and to the land of Helam, and then he comes and he establishes the church in Zarahemla. Uh, they also have a history of Alma the Younger being wild and trying to destroy the church and then having his conversion experience and coming back around. And they voted for him to be uh, high priest or high, uh, the uh, chief judge. So this idea of institutional memory is an interesting one. Let, let's, let's stop for just a second and, and talk about this. Um, because I think we're watching within in the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we're watching this movement uh, away from, in some ways, some of our history and towards a, foc a greater focus on Christ. If, if you went 20 years ago and you looked in our chapels and you'd walk around in any of our chapels, you would see uh, an awful lot of pictures of uh, the Sacred Grove, of Nauvoo, of uh, Joseph Smith, of uh, just a lot of things um, and that are all related to our history and, and certainly in the in the past, uh, scholars have said that for so many years and so many decades, our history was our theology. Ask a, a Latter-day Saint about what the church believes in, and you'd get a story about gold plates and angels and hill camoras and translations and our history and even hand carts and those kind of things. Our history was really bound up in, in the, and created the theology that we believed in. Today, if you walk through an LDS chapel, you're just going to see uh, a lot of pictures of Christ, scenes of Christ, uh, and it's very obvious for anybody walking through one of our chapel buildings to just see how focused we are intently on uh, the Savior. Our theology is becoming our the, the Savior, as it should be, but that, that means that there's a transition away from an overall focus on our history, which makes sense. If you're, in, if you're in Japan or you're growing up in Chile, you're not really caring that much about hand carts. You're not really as much interested in the pioneer trek uh, as much as you are your local history and who are your local pioneers and do we believe in Jesus as opposed to the other churches around you our history re resonates in Utah where that took place our history doesn't resonate outside the Wasatch Front nearly so much so there was a need to do that so our institutional memory is moving in this case of back to Alma though he wants them to he wants to bring in the institutional memory of his father and how they got to where they are because he's looking at the idea that they were in bondage and then they were delivered and then they were captive and then they were delivered and then he's going to make that movement over to how they're doing individually uh, because 
if we go to verse 7, he's going to say to them, that institutional group, that gang that came out of uh, the land of Helam, which included himself, he's going to say in verse 7, Behold, God changed their hearts. He awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke to God. They were in the midst of darkness. They were encircled about by the chains of hell. Uh, but the bands of death were broken. Then he's going to say, how, how did they do that? You know, how did they get to that point where suddenly they broke out of all of those things? And then he's going to say, it didn't it start with Alma listening to a prophet? In that case, the prophet Abinadi. Wasn't he a holy prophet? Didn't my, my father Alma believe him? And when he believed this, the, this amazing thing happened. There was a mighty change wrought in his heart. And he says, Behold, I say unto you, this is all true. I, I suppose that's him bearing down in testimony. My dad's heart changed. And w when he did, he preached the word unto your fathers, and a mighty change was wrought in their hearts. And they humbled themselves and put their trust in a true and living God. Therefore, they were saved. That saved is going to be the word redeemed. And we'll talk about that in a second. So here's his question then. And it's the, it's the famous question that comes out of Alma 5. Uh, now behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the church, have you been spiritually born of God? Have you received his image in your countenance? Well, that's interesting. As a result of that, have you experienced this mighty change of heart that happened to his dad, happened to their fathers? Um, and do you exercise a, a faith in the redemption? Now, this word redemption, um, he's, going to, he's going to take just a second, and he's going to say, uh, if you have had this mighty change of heart, can you sing the song of redeeming love? That idea of redeeming love and redemption, I think, is important. And he's saying, if you, can, if you could sing it, could you sing it now? Now, the idea of redeeming love takes us to the question is, what does it mean to be redeemed, or what does it mean to have had redemption? And we have a couple of hints of that uh, in the Book of Mormon. If we, if we uh, quickly flip over to Ether 3, 13, uh, we, here we have the, the brother of Jared talking to the Lord, and the Lord is giving him knowledge and information. And then he's going to say, and when he had s said these words, this is verse uh, 13, he's going to say, behold, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him, and he said, because thou knowest all these things, ye are redeemed from the fall. Therefore, you're brought back into my presence. Therefore, I show myself unto you. Well, that's pretty important. It's important because uh, the Lord is going to say to him uh, that that redemption from the fall, therefore you'll be brought back, back into my presence, is really saying the idea of redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is to be back in the presence of, of God. Um, we actually have one other where Lehi is actually going to say, the Lord hath redeemed my soul from hell 
and I have beheld his glory. Redemption means back in the presence. And so that song of redeeming love means I have felt his presence. I feel like I've been in his presence. And Alma's going to say, if you were baptized, if your heart was changed in the past, can you feel so now? In other words, your heart changed. Could it change back? Is it, is it a, without trying, is it a permanent change? Well, apparently not. Because um, he's going he's gonna to press this a little bit. H- have you walked keeping yourself blameless before God? Uh, are you stripped of pride? And, and then he's going to easily begin to slide over. And I, again, I think this is what drives all of what, is, what Alma is really struggling with. Verse 30. And I say unto you, if you've had this mighty change of heart, right? And you can, you've been able to sing that song. Is there one among you that doth make mock of his brother or heap upon him persecutions? In other words, how can you have a change of heart and then mock your brother? How can you have uh, experienced this song of redeeming love and treat with cruelty and harshness those around you? Uh, think about the Savior uh, when he talks about the fact that uh, if you if you love me, keep my commandments. But then he's going to say, and by this shall men know that you're my disciples. How is that? Well, you have love one for another. Brings to mind there's a there's a wonderful quote by uh, uh, Brother uh, Terrell Givens uh, that I think really resonates in in this case. Uh, here's what here's what Brother Given says. We may begin uh, our journey, our spiritual journey. We may begin with habit, duty, fear of hell, or hope of heaven. Something's going to drive us, right? But the only durable discipleship, and kind of let that one sit. The only durable discipleship, that is, that discipleship that can withstand the test of time. That durable discipleship is rooted in the capacity to feel and reciprocate the love of Christ. Let me say that again. But the only durable discipleship is rooted in the capacity to feel and reciprocate the love of Christ. Such love is the final stage of the disciples' journey. And we could say, yes, exactly, we're on board with that. Then he goes on. The problem with institutional religion, even one divinely restored, is the temptation it affords us to make our own spirituality the goal. Rules, standards, and commandments all provide us with the means of measuring our own progress, our own prospects for happiness. That's not discipleship. That's a plant that will not bloom. That idea that, that we're going to make our own spirituality the goal rather than our spirituality is to learn how to love and love one another is a problem. That we're going to somehow sit in our living room and be spiritual till we glow, but we're never going to raise our hand to help uh, someone who's struggling. We're never going to serve in a calling. We're not going to reach out and help those that are struggling that's not discipleship. 
and really it's not really it makes our it would call our spirituality into question if we think we're spiritual we're filled with the love of god and we're not serving or we think our hearts have changed and we're filled with this spiritual glow of redeeming love and we mock our brothers that that doesn't fly so that's why it is in uh, section 128 and joseph smith is going to say they without us speaking of the dead they without us cannot be made perfect neither can we be made perfect without them i would suggest and i would carry it one step farther that that exists to our spouses to our families to those around us that we cannot be made perfect without them or they without us and ultimately that's where it is that that uh, alma is going with all of this and well i've kind of titled this this class that uh, salvation is not an individual sport we cannot be saved alone we are saved only by reaching out and loving and serving the others and allowing them to love and serve us. That's why it, the, we may not know who has had a, an experienced a mighty change of heart. We don't know. They, it's, it's theirs. It's not ours. But as we look at ourselves and we say, have I had a mighty change of heart? I will know how I'm doing on that mighty change of heart by how I treat those around me. If I'm not treating people around me very well or I'm refraining from serving them at all, that would throw into question how much my heart has really changed. If I'm going to sing a song of redeeming love, I want to be redeemed. I want to be back in the presence of God, and I want to save myself and all my dead. It's, it's, all, it all, it's a package deal, but that means that I love those and serve those around me, and I want them to succeed as much as I do. So again, so much of uh, Alma 5 is really leading, it's all pointed towards, can I reach out and serve and help uh, other people? Will I do that? And as I do that, that I begin to reflect that light, and then at that point, then I can say, do I have his image on my countenance? Yes, I have the image of a loving, saving God who reaches out, who draws men and women unto him and so that he can bring them home. In a sense, if we're going to talk about redemption and being redeemed as coming back into the presence of God, we're talking about the Savior as the Redeemer, the one who brings us back into God's presence and with him partake of eternal life. That's the goal. So, brothers and sisters, Alma 5, and then we're going to, as we roll forward with this, here's the goal. That is to take care of one another, to love one another, to see what we can do to make their lives better, to go back to what Alma's father made as his baptismal interview, Do the, those three things. Do you mourn with those that mourn? Comfort those that stand in need of comfort? and stand as a witness of Christ in all things. And a witness of Christ is one that is going to reach out and love those around us and do so with a sense of mercy and kindness. Bearing my testimony that the Lord intends to draw us close to him to be our redeemer. 
And I leave this with you in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.